March 27, 1979. Almost 11 years since the brutally beaten body of 18-year-old Christine Rothschild was found stabbed to death in a bush on the grounds of UW-Madison. Exactly six years to the day since 15-year-old Tina Davison was stabbed to death, her nude body left on the shore of Lake Michigan in Racine. Three years since 20-year-old Deborah Bennett's charred remains were found in a field in Cross Plains. And only one year since the nude, decomposed body of Julianne Hall was found, face down, hidden a hole in the ground near the Wanakee Marsh State Wildlife Area. Another young woman named Julie would go missing from downtown Madison. Her whereabouts would remain a mystery for almost two years. This is the Searching for Closure podcast. Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide Files. It's a murder from 1973. 20-year-old Julia Spearschneider was last seen leaving the 602 Club on University Avenue near downtown Madison. She called her longtime friend, Patty Lou, from the Memorial Union around 8.30 that night and told her she was on her way over to watch a movie, but Julie would never arrive. Julie was known to hitchhike down Johnson Street, and it's believed that she possibly took this route to get to her friend's house that night. She was last seen wearing blue jeans, boots, and a gray and blue striped Mexican poncho. During the search for Julie, police believed that she was not hitchhiking alone. During the foggy evening hours, Police believe that Julie and an unidentified man were both picked up near the corner of State Street and Johnson Street. The driver of the compact white four-door car told police that he dropped the two off at the corner of Johnson and Breeley Street, which is only a couple blocks from Julie's friend's house. It's about two miles from the 602 Club and only a mile from where she was picked up. The man she was hiking with was described as a white male in his early 20s. He had a roundish face and was about 6 feet tall. He had straight, dark hair, clipped straight just below his ears. He was wearing jeans, a tweed or jean jacket, and had on either a cap or possibly a beret. It's believed that despite getting a ride together, they didn't actually know each other. They got out of the car together, crossed the street, and that was the last time anyone saw either of them. Later, under hypnosis, the driver of the car claimed that he remembered the two of them walking in opposite directions, with Julie walking down Breeley Street and the man crossing over on a Johnson Street. When Julie didn't show up, no one was immediately concerned. Perhaps Julie just found something better to do that night. It wasn't until later the next day their two roommates, Gary and Gail, began to worry. The three lived together in a rented two-story house near downtown, and after they learned that Julie had missed work at both of her part-time jobs as a waitress in a small Chinese restaurant and as a helper in a daycare, they started to panic. They called her friends and even her parents, but no one 
had heard from Julie. Days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and Julie was nowhere to be seen. Julie's parents, David and Joan, both said that there is no way that Julie ran away, and her friends agreed with that. They said that she never missed work, and always told family and friends if she was leaving town for a while, and that she would never take a trip alone. She had no identification on her, and she didn't even carry a purse. She had hardly any money, and not a thing packed up, so there is no way that she could have left on her own. While she was at the 602 Club, she didn't get drunk. She only had two beers during the two hours that she was there, and she had shown no signs in recent days that she was planning on skipping town. She was described as attractive, physically striking, though not beautiful, but she definitely stood out in a crowd. She was a free spirit who never held back when it came to speaking her mind. She would never have teased or came on to a guy who had picked her up hitchhiking. But her friends and family agree that it's quite possible she could have said something to anger someone. Police looked into Julie's two roommates. As is often the case, police started in the center of the investigation and worked their way outwards. Gary was given two lie detector tests, and the police used a warrant to search the house. The three of them had a non-romantic living arrangement, which was not unusual in the campus area, and eventually, both friends were cleared. As time went on, her friends and family got more desperate for answers. They turned to 15 different psychics and several mystics in hopes of getting any kind of clue, but every clue they got from them led nowhere. Two years went by. With no answers and no new leads, detectives were frustrated and hopeless. One detective stated, quote, Frankly, I don't think we'll ever find her. And if we do, it'll be some hunter who stumbles across her body in the woods somewhere. But even that is unlikely now. That detective didn't know how spot on she really was. Around 4.30 p.m. on April 18th, 1981, 16-year-old Charles Berta Stoughton was walking through a wooded area near a river which fed into a lake when he discovered the skeletal remains of a young woman. The body was laying face down and was covered with branches and twigs. Just like Julianne Hall, someone had attempted in hiding the body. The area is about 15 miles, or a half-hour drive from where Julie was last seen, is sandwiched between two lakes that has a smaller lake in the middle, all being fed by a river that eventually connects to Lake Monona, just below the state capital, where Julie was last seen. At the time of her disappearance, there was still ice on the lake, and some people speculated that perhaps she wandered out onto the frozen lake and fell through the ice. But, I find it very hard to believe that her body could have traveled through three different lakes fed by one small river and eventually ended up where it was found. At the time of her death, her body was far too decomposed to even identify, let alone determine a cause of death. Once again, 
Investigators from the coroner's office had to use dental records to establish the identity and confirm that it was in fact Julie. Despite there being no clothing found on or near her body, there was one other clue besides her dental records. A braid of brown hair, tied with a decorative elastic band and a gold hoop earring. In next week's episode, we're staying in 1979, nine months after Julie disappeared from downtown Madison, a 24-year-old woman with mental and physical handicaps would also go missing. It wouldn't be until April the following year that her body would be found in the lost city of Madison. If you have any tips, leads, or clues regarding any of the cases I cover, please email me at info at searchingforclosure.com or join our Facebook group, which can be found at facebook.com slash groups slash searchingforclosure. All of these links, along with photos, articles, and updates, can be found at searchingforclosure.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you're instantly updated with any new episodes. If I do get any breaking news, I'll release it as soon as I can record it, instead of waiting for the normal release date. Also, please share this podcast with all your friends and family. Share it on Facebook. Tell your coworkers. Tell everyone you know. The more people who listen to this, the more tips and breaks in the case we might get. The more fresh eyes we have at examining it, the more possibilities we have in seeing a new angle or something that might have been overlooked. Until next time, thank you for listening.